What do you do when someone that you respect and love is being treated poorly? What if they're being rejected, mocked, humiliated? Has that ever happened to you? I was thinking about our passage this morning and how the disciples would feel about the reception Jesus got in his own hometown. And I thought of a friend and former church member that I was visiting with one year ago this weekend. Uh, Some of you will remember them, Bernard and Ruth Dudley. Bernard and Ruth uh, lived here on the hill. Uh, They hosted a house. Bernard had had a successful company in South Africa that he sold. He recounted to me one time this story of when he was just a boy and was camping with his father and mother and brothers and sisters in a national park in South Africa. And as Bernard recounted it to me, I believe he was somewhere between 10 and 12 years of age. I believe it was the early 1950s. And they had been camping before, but new laws were being passed in South Africa then. The Dudleys were classified as colored by these new laws. That is not Indian, uh, not black African, uh, not white African, but mixed race. His father was, I believe, a successful businessman, uh, respected in the community. But not this one day that Bernard recounted to me. When he recounted this story, this 60 or 70 year old pain came back to his memory. Officers came up to them that day and spoke roughly to his father. They told him to clear him and his family off this parkland that it was reserved for whites now. His father couldn't believe it at first. But when he could see that they were serious and even seeming to threaten violence, humiliated at being spoken to like this in front of his children, he had no choice but to quickly pack up the tent and move the family on. Is that kind of humiliation anything like what the disciples knew that day in Nazareth? Jesus' disciples had been following him for a year or two now. And there was definitely some opposition from religious leaders that was beginning to grow up. But on the whole, Jesus seemed to be popular. Around Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, crowds came out to hear him. So when Jesus had finished these parables of the kingdom of heaven and went away from Capernaum and came to his own hometown of Nazareth about five or six miles away, just a a small village of humble laborers. But it had a synagogue and Jesus' family still lived there. As his closest disciples accompanied him there, would they have expected that Nazareth would roll out the red carpet for its hometown boy made good? Would the crowds that seemed to greet Jesus wherever he went be there too? Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. If you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find that on page 819. Hear now God's word. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, 
he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Four simple questions as we walk through this passage. Number one, what did Jesus do? Number two, what did the Nazarenes do? Number three, how did Jesus respond? And number four, what will you do? Number one, what did Jesus do? Number two, what did the Nazarenes do? Number three, how did Jesus respond? And number four, what will you do? I pray that as we study this passage, you'll be helped to understand and to respond rightly when the world around you rejects Jesus and even rejects you for following Jesus. First, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus came and taught the truth. That's what we see here in verses 53 and 54. Look again at verse 53. He went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So Jesus went to Nazareth. That's his hometown mentioned in verse 54. It's mentioned also in the parallel passage in Mark 6. And if it's the same occasion in the parallel passage in Luke 4. And there Jesus taught in the synagogue. Now, everyone in Nazareth would have known each other. It was a, a small place, a village really, just 500 or 1,000 people. And it was Jesus' custom, wherever he was, to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, just a little explanation there. If you're visiting today, you're not, you're not normally very religious. Maybe you ended up in a, a two-hour service by mistake, or perhaps a friend brought you without warning, or... Maybe you're one of those a friend came with warning. But if you're not used to thinking about religion, just understand Christianity teaches that we learn the truth about God only from God. That's a very basic part of you understanding Christianity. We don't think you figure it out on your own. Christianity was not discovered in a lab. We don't Aristotle-like work up from the inductive to the great truth at the top. It doesn't work like that. No, God has to reveal himself, his truth, including the truth about you, or we wouldn't know it. And he reveals that in the word that he has inspired. All right, so that's just a little basic instruction in Christianity. Okay, so Jesus had a custom of going to the synagogue and hearing God's word because there the local Jews would hear the scriptures read and spoken about. The local attendant would take up a scroll. That'd be the most precious object in the whole town usually. Uh, and he would take it to someone who would stand to read it. And then he would sit and comment on it. Uh, as best I can tell, there was a, a time of a set calendar of readings from the law, the books of Moses, but freedom of choice for a passage from the prophets. Jesus probably would have read the passage in Hebrew, and then he or somebody else would have paraphrased it in Aramaic. 
and then he would have commented upon it. Well, what specifically did Jesus teach this time? I think Matthew assumes that we know that Jesus is going around teaching that the kingdom of heaven is coming in him. This is what the parables here in chapter 13 have been about. Or if you look back in chapter 12, he had taught that his true family were those who did the will of his father in heaven. Uh, he had cast out unclean spirits and said that he was greater than the prophet Jonah. He was greater than King Solomon. Friends, Jesus had come to teach about himself and his mission. Now, that was the center of his message. Oh, we know in Luke 4, Jesus' text that he chose at that time, and maybe that time is this time, is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Our passage here in Matthew 13 is either recounting that same time or if not, it would certainly have been a reading very much like it. Jesus taught that with him, the kingdom of heaven was coming. The year of the Lord's favor and that the Lord had anointed him and sent him to preach this good news. It's interesting, the hometown boy turning up and preaching to a synagogue full of people who'd known him since he was born. It's like when Isaac was teaching Wednesday night Bible study the other night, and somebody from the church he grew up in was here. And uh, he mentioned, he called her Mrs. Wagner. Uh, and Mary yelled out, I've known you since you were born. The, the synagogue would have been like that. It would have been full of people who had known Jesus literally since he was a little boy. Well, in that situation, what would Jesus do? Well, he told them the truth. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you might want to think for a moment that it's possible that people you've known for a long time, maybe some people who are members of your own family, are people you shouldn't just dismiss because you know what they're going to say. They may have some very important things to you that you might want to just listen to one more time with careful ears. Anyway, in Jesus' own ministry, he came uniquely to die as a substitute and to be raised for our justification. He did other unique acts of power like giving sight to the blind, which we have no record of ever being done in the Old Testament. All these things showed that he was the true Moses, he was leading the real Israel in the new exodus of salvation to all who would believe in him. But Jesus also came to teach. He didn't just do miracles. In fact, he spent years teaching everyone from the crowds to his disciples to this group here in our passage in his own hometown. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 when his disciples pressed him to come back to Capernaum and keep healing people as the crowds there were demanding, Jesus said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. This commitment to teaching, as Jesus goes to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue and he teaches, this commitment to teaching still forms our own weekly meetings. It forms what we're doing right now. Do you notice this church has been meeting on this corner literally since 1878? And do you know what we've done every week? Every week we begin the week by getting together. Why is it we always get together on Sunday morning? Does no one ever need to work on Sunday? No, we get together on Sunday because when Jesus got up, 
This is when Christians have always gathered. We begin our weeks together. Our new week dedicated to the Lord who's been raised from the dead. And what is the center of our meetings? It's what we're doing right now. It's hearing God's word read and preached, taught, explained. Well, that doesn't work anymore. Well, I beg to differ. You know, I think by God's grace, I find my soul regularly fed by people who read God's word to me and explain it to me. Uh, your own presence here suggests that also, that perhaps it works for you, that you too are finding God's blessing and knowing his word read and preached. In fact, wherever you find the truth about Jesus Christ, you will find a commitment to teach and preach God's word. We go back to the first two generations of the Protestant Reformation. You find that they were largely an eruption of exposition, pouring out over listeners in Wittenberg and Zurich and Geneva and in other cities around Europe. From early in his career in Wittenberg, Luther preached both to his own monk order of Augustinians and in the town church. He preached a torrent of sermons that came to form the cornerstone of all that he wrote. One scholar estimates that of the 1,800 editions of his works printed before 1526, some 40% were published sermons. That's a lot of sermons. Between 1519 and 1522, Ulrich Zwingli down in Zurich delivered expository sermons that covered the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Acts, several of the epistles. His call to be the people's priest in Zurich in 1518 was the proof of his talent and the basis of his authority that sustained the Reformation in Zurich through its first tumultuous years. And then if you go to the next generation, what happened after them, after that first generation? Well, the commitment to preaching, if anything, was more intense. Heinrich Bullinger, who succeeded Zurich, uh, Zwingli in Zurich, his commitment was to preach six times each week. And in the course of his 44-year ministry there, he's thought to have preached over 7,000 sermons covering every book of the Old and New Testament. And his zeal was more than matched by that of John Calvin in Geneva, preaching twice on a Sunday and on weekdays. Calvin preached as many as 286 sermons a year, a total of around 4,000 sermons throughout his ministry. Friends, all of these preachers, and I could keep going without end, were following the footsteps of their master Jesus, who came preaching and teaching the truth of God's word. So it's not surprising when Jesus goes to his hometown, what does he do? He opens the Bible and he preaches. That's what Christians do. Second, what did the Nazarenes do? Well, very simply, the Nazarenes took offense. Look there at verse 54, at the end of verse 54. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Well, we see first up in verse 54, that these locals were astonished. They wondered or marveled. Now in itself, that expression doesn't convey something so much negative or positive. Uh, it could be either. The context determines it. But it suggests surprise and even confusion. So then from the end of verse 54 through verses 55 and 56, 
you see these rhetorical questions, and if you count them, there are six. You see the pattern in them? Look down at those questions. The first and the last question are really the same question. Where did he get this from? And that gives you the feel of all the questions. The beginning and ending questions, where Jesus got this from, was implying that he hadn't gotten it from God. And they weren't denying that he did supernatural works. So that only left one alternative source. They were implying by that question that he was getting his authority from the evil one. So these were not flat rhetorical questions. And then these four questions in the middle, they're all basically saying the same thing. We know who this guy is. Who does he think he is? We know his family. We've always known him. So friends, I just want you to realize these are not flat questions. They are asserting and assuming Jesus' unsuitedness to say what he's saying about himself. They knew he didn't come from heaven. They knew he was from Nazareth. As if God were not able to cause his son to be incarnated in someone who would live in that town or be a part of that family. Just on the side, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus had brothers and sisters? I know many of you have a Roman Catholic background. I just want to point this out. This here would be different than the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's a much later doctrine in the history of Christianity. It's propagated by the ever-innovative Church of Rome. If you want older doctrine than Rome teaches, read your New Testament. It's not that questions of Jesus' family are unimportant. I don't mean to, to mock that. But the Nazarenes here were focused on the wrong members of the family. They were trying to fix Jesus' identity based on who his sisters were, who his brothers were, who his mother even was. But the crucial fact they lacked is knowing who his father truly was. When Jesus said that he'd come down from heaven to do the will of his father in heaven, he was teaching more than they understood. Do you remember what Jesus had so recently taught back in chapter 12 when his mother and brothers had made the journey down to Capernaum to see him? Back in Mark chapter 12, verse 50, he said, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What do you think offended the hearers so much? Matthew says simply that they took offense at him. Could it be the message that he would preach in which he would include the Gentiles? He so often spoke of that. It was customary to stand respectfully while reading the scriptures and then to sit, sit humbly while teaching. And that's a practice I may advocate in my ministry should God give me more years. In Luke's account, when God says that Jesus sat down there, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whatever text he used that day in Nazareth, he clearly claimed publicly to be the Messiah. But it's striking, isn't it, that those who knew Jesus best in the flesh rejected him. Familiarity did not seem to breed faith. Jesus' own family and friends rejected him. Now, they should have recognized him and accepted him and believed him and trusted him. But instead, they saw only by the flesh. And anyone looking at Jesus only with the eyes of the flesh will not understand who he is. 
As Peter and Matthew and John and the other disciples with him could plainly see, the people took offense at Jesus. We read down in verse 57 that very clearly. How did John summarize it? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They didn't believe in Jesus. They were scandalized by him. They stumbled over him. And this rejection in his hometown marks a transition in Jesus' public ministry to even more public rejection, which ultimately, of course, will be the rejection that Jesus experiences in Jerusalem. What did that do to the disciples' faith? Some of you feel shaken when you hear of a famous Christian walking away from the faith. Bernard felt shaken in his life when he saw his father that he respected so much treated as he was. Friends, what did those disciples feel? When this rabbi who had been garnering crowds everywhere else, that they had left everything they had in order to follow, when he goes back home to the people who knew him best, and those people rejected him, even with public mockery, jeers. These Nazarenes show us how saving knowledge of Jesus is not in the flesh. Think of all the real facts that they knew about Jesus that you and I don't know. They knew how tall he was. We don't. They knew what he looked like. We don't. They knew in what sense he was ugly. They knew how kind he could be as a teenager. They could remember speaking with him. Maybe what he looked like when he ran around as a child. They had a memory of the physical sound of his voice that you and I don't have. But for all of the true knowledge that they had of Jesus in the flesh, they didn't know him savingly, did they? Finally, Jesus does not affect them by his sermon that day. They were unmoved. And given their course, this is disastrous. You know, you can be impressed and still not really believe. You can be faithful, but realize if you are faithful, you might not be popular. I'm afraid often we have to choose between being faithful or being popular. Being faithful will not assure people accept what we say. And we can't tailor our message to suit our hearers, not and be faithful. Friends, unbelief is obstinate. It looks for reasons to not believe. So these Nazarenes refused to believe in Jesus because they knew his family. But if you look over in John 9, their people were refusing to believe in Jesus because they didn't know his family. Friend, take it from a former agnostic. I was an agnostic because I really thought it was true. But there became a point when I was investigating Christianity and I began to be less confident in the truth of my agnosticism that I simply didn't want to go through the hassle of changing. And I just wanted to find reasons to support my agnosticism. I wanted to find roadblocks to put in the way of biblical Christianity. Don't think that belief or unbelief is neutral. We all know belief isn't neutral. I want you to understand that unbelief isn't neutral either. What about you, friend? 
You know, you can be very familiar with Jesus and still not know him. You might know a lot of facts. You might have had a, a friend who was a Christian, a spouse who was a Christian, a parent who was a Christian. You might have gone to Sunday school back in the 1980s. But still not know Christ. These Nazarenes knew lots of facts about Jesus. But they didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand why he had come. As I reflected on this passage this week, I found this to be a particularly touching part of Jesus' humiliation for us. Christ's loving condescension, coming and preaching to them in this insignificant village synagogue is met by mocking jeers. The rejection by those in the hometown was a part of bearing the shame that we've deserved that he bore it for us. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, is Christ's faithfulness here in bringing God's word to those who would reject him a part of his unique ministry to us? Or is it also a part of his ministry that he calls us into to follow him? Are you willing to glorify him at such a cost? I know for some here this morning, you have. And so this is another part of his being tried in every way of Jesus high priestly sympathizing with us in Hebrews 4.15 because we have already experienced something like this in our following of Jesus. Christian, what about you? Have you been rejected for following Christ? I wonder how many of us have experienced rejection of some of those closest to us. Hometowns, childhood friends, even parents or brothers or sisters for following Christ. You might want to ask each other about this over lunch. You might find some things you didn't realize. You might learn some important facts. You might be encouraged and challenged. Certainly we see here that as important as God has made our families to be, our identity is not fundamentally in our families. These families of ours are dear, but they are imperfect. And they are passing. Just yesterday, as we know, different families in our church buried the mortal remains of those they loved. A daughter here in Maryland, a mother in South Carolina. But in Christ, we are adopted by our Heavenly Father into our everlasting family. And membership in that family is what is now most fundamental to our identity now. Of course, these Nazarenes that day couldn't see that. But we do. Third, how did Jesus respond? How did Jesus respond? Look there at the end of verses 57 and 58. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And then you see the fruit of no faith there in verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So in verse 57, we have Jesus' statement about prophetic dishonor. And then in verse 58, the statement that their unbelief led to Jesus doing mighty work, doing few mighty works there. <coughs> this statement of Jesus was not a quotation of the Old Testament scriptures. 
It was simply a proverbial summary of the sad truth of Israel's regular rejection of true prophets. So when Stephen is about to be stoned in Acts 7.52, he could say, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, referring to Jesus. Now, we can't reason from Jesus' statement here to conclude that all who are dishonored in their hometown are prophets. It doesn't work that way. But of course, we know that what Jesus says here is generally true. True wisdom will not always seem true to the world around us. So many of the intuitive thoughts we have about God are false. Our world today is trying to tell us that to know real truth, we need to look inside, see whatever we subjectively assume to be true and go with that. Yeah, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's just not true. It's not true with any part of our lives. It's certainly not true in our thoughts about God. We don't innately assume and assemble all the truths about God from just our own assumptions. We are told from outside of ourselves about God by God, things that we would not have guessed before we were told them. So here we see this statement of Jesus about who is dishonored and where. And you see how their unbelief impoverished their village in verse 58. Their unbelief in Jesus led Jesus to do few mighty works there. doesn't say he did no mighty works there, that he couldn't in the sense of the sort of power cord of our faith had been pulled from the plug, so Jesus kind of slumped over. No, it says he did few mighty works there. Because, friends, the, the purpose of those mighty works was to sort of land on the running strip of faith, to teach people more about who he is and what he'd come to do. He wasn't there as a mere miracle worker, a wonder worker. His wonders helped people understand more and confirm their faith in who he was. But he did not do many mighty works. Why do you think Jesus did miracles? To prove that he was who he said he was? Maybe kind of, I don't think directly that. I think what he's doing is breaking the mold, showing that he's not the run-of-the-mill rabbi, and the things he's doing specifically are of great importance. The things he's doing are things that are prophesied in the Old Testament and should be setting off specific alarm bells in the minds of the people making them connect dots and see, oh, that's what's going on. It's to wake them up. So contrary to what some are saying about the role of miracles in evangelism, Jesus evidently did not do miracles in order to create faith. So here the absence of faith seemed to negate the purpose of the miracles at all. We all think seeing is believing, but the Bible tells us that's not so. Plenty of people saw Jesus' miracles and yet didn't believe. No, it's not seeing that gives birth to faith, but hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Friends, miracles are not self-interpreting. You could see someone levitate outside after church on the street, and you could have three different people walk by and explain to you what had just happened and why. Miracles are not self-interpreting. They don't prove something in that sense. They need to be interpreted. In fact, the entire New Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit 
to explain and help us understand what Jesus was doing in being crucified and being resurrected. So just like we have a whole bunch of revelation around the Exodus event in the Old Testament and then many references back to it throughout the Old Testament as God the Holy Spirit explains through the prophets the significance of these supernatural things that were done, so around the coming of Jesus. The prophet prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like him. Uh, the greater than David. The one who's greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. When he did his mighty works, climaxing in his crucifixion and resurrection, that crucifixion and resurrection was not self-interpreting. He had been teaching for years so the disciples would understand it. And his spirit inspired them to understand and to write down the truth about it in the years afterwards. Friends, you understand the significance of the crucifixion and resurrection can mean for you a new relationship with God. I can never have met you and I know the darkest truths about you that you have sinned against a God who has been only good to you. That you deserve his judgment eternally. And because he is good, he will give you that judgment. But in this life, while you draw breath, you can still hear of the mercy that's available through his sending his son, Jesus Christ. That he sent his son specifically on this first mission to save to live a perfect life of trust and to die as a substitute, not a death he deserved, but a death in the place of others. The entire substitutionary system of the sacrifices of the Old Testament was set up just to begin teaching us this truth so that it would be by repetition, a straightforward truth by the time Jesus came. This doesn't deserve to die. It's standing for you and your sin and what your sin deserves. This doesn't deserve to die. It's standing for you and your sin in this way and what your sin deserves. That done a thousand times, a million times, was how the people of Israel had been catechized so that they could understand when Jesus came and presented himself as the Lamb of God, come to bear the sins of the world. So he did. He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. And God raised him from the dead for our justification. And now we are called to turn from our sins and to trust in him. And he will forgive us and bring us into a relationship of love with God, our Heavenly Father. That's what you could have. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about what that means, please talk to me or one of the other pastors at the doors on the way out. There's, there's nothing else we'd rather talk to you about more than that. Please talk to people you've come with today to understand more of what this means. But here in Nazareth on this day, at least as far as most people were concerned. There was no point to doing miracles if there was no faith to understand and correctly interpret them. Such works that day in Nazareth would only add to their judgment for truth scorned that was already mounting up against these Nazarenes. So Jesus condemned their dishonoring him and withdrew from them. Fourth, what will we do? What did Matthew and John and Peter do? What will Eli and Steve and John do? 
Will we be Nazarenes? How will we respond to this incident, to watching Jesus being so rejected? That's really the position that Matthew leaves us in as the readers. It's the position of the disciples who would have accompanied Jesus, would have been in. How would they respond to seeing those who knew Jesus best so dismissed and rejected? Would it rock their faith? Look at the first phrase in verse 53. Look at the first phrase in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables. So when Jesus finished teaching his disciples these parables about the kingdom of heaven, he headed to his hometown of Nazareth, not too far away, to preach the word of God as he always did, and in the process to help them better see the kingdom coming, even amidst the most painful rejection. Now consider Jesus had not taught them what we've been learning in chapter 13 about the kingdom, how this rejection could have utterly undone the faith of Jesus' disciples who witnessed it. If they thought that every time the word went out, if it was good, it would have an immediate good response. If they thought that whenever the news about the kingdom came, that it would be accepted, it would be big, and everybody would rejoice. If they thought that there would be nothing bad when the news of the kingdom coming came, but all would now be good. If they thought that there was no self-sacrifice involved, that the treasure would simply be presented openly to all and we would all just have it. If they thought that they could simply receive this new thing without any connection with what God had revealed for a thousand years before to the nation of Israel. Well, then this would be deeply confusing to them. But he had taught them those parables. He had taught them what the kingdom was like. Friends, imagine each one of these lessons from earlier in the chapter, kind of like the optometrist. When you're sitting in the chair and they've got the big thing in front of you and they're clicking lenses to try to make those letters clearer and crisper to you. That's what he's doing. So the parable of the sower up at the beginning of the chapter, ah, so the same word can go out and be heard here in the synagogue today and there can be different responses to it. A bad response doesn't mean that the word that went out is faulty. Okay. Or second lesson from the wheat and the weeds and the good and bad fish, the bad ones won't be sorted out right now. That's not what this coming of the Messiah is about. So there can be folks even in the synagogue of Jesus' hometown where Jesus is rejected and that still doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven has not come among them. It's not all immediate. You and I must not grow weary and despair because of evil in this world. God's judgment on the weeds, on the bad fish is coming even if we can't see it yet. It will come just in time. Third lesson from the mustard seed and the leaven. The number who accept Jesus may sometimes even look really small. And that doesn't mean it's not the gigantic kingdom of heaven that is appearing. Even among a fairly small group of believers. Fourth lesson, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Show that the joy of what we gain exceeds the cost of what we lose when we find the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ even if we have to lose 
all of our family and friends, we are the winners in the bargain. And fifth, from just up in verse 52, Jesus was like the master of the house, bringing out treasures new and old from the scriptures. And that's what they too would need to do as they turned and taught this great news to others. As in the great Psalm 1, Jesus was teaching that ultimately the way of the righteous would endure and prosper, but the way of the wicked would ultimately fall under God's judgment. However different that may be than the scenes which met their eyes that day in Nazareth as Jesus was publicly mocked. That would not be the last public word about Jesus. Do you see how this teaching that Jesus had been doing about the nature of the kingdom was preparing his disciples then and us now for the coming rejection so that we could understand the rejection that Jesus would undergo for us and that we could accept the rejection that even we ourselves as his followers would be called to know. So what about you, my friend? Where do you think Jesus' wisdom and mighty works came from? Do you feel the underlying urgency of that question? How important is it for you to study and to consider what you think of Jesus? And friends, don't miss the dawning of the words of Jesus here in verse 57 that ends up dwarfing the dark words of judgment. Yes, it's true that there is dishonor for Jesus in his own household and in his hometown. That's true. But read that sentence in verse 57 again. The double negative can confuse you. That simply foreshadows a larger dishonor to come in Jerusalem. We know that from knowing the story. But Jesus said here that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. That means that in the broad lands beyond, he is honored. And you see here how Jesus was picking up those great themes from the Old Testament. Isaac, like you preached on a few weeks ago from Isaiah 19. I love those verses where we read that in that day, Israel will be the third and Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts had blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Or that wonderful prophecy from Micah, chapter four. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Dishonored at home, Jerusalem, may have, Jesus may have been, but now the praise for him and his sacrifice for us and the mercy expressed and affected and the peace that he has brought between us and God, praise to him now flows from around the globe. He is honored. He is honored on every continent. He is honored in every people as the one who has fulfilled the promises that he mentioned that day 
in that unbelieving synagogue in Nazareth. You see, when you begin to understand the scriptures through the life and teaching of Jesus, you find treasure new and old that you can relish with satisfaction and share with others with joy. Are you finding that as you study the Bible, Old Testament and New? It's all there for your joy, my brothers and sisters. It's all there for you to discover and be fed by, to understand the whole Bible around Jesus Christ. And as you do that, God will use that to help give you the ballast that you will need to weather the rejections that still come in this fallen age until it comes to its close in the second coming of Christ when he comes to complete his work as the Messiah in judgment. Is that part of your hope today? Has Christ already been judged for you? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for loving us so that you would send your only son to suffer for us, to suffer in our place. Thank you for your perfect plans. Thank you for your unbelievable love. Thank you, Lord, for your concern for the truth. Thank you for the way you pour out your spirit to give us spiritual sight when we were blind. Do that even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.